We'll be in Luke 22 today. <clears throat> Today's the first Sunday of the month, which at Lockwood means that we're going to take the Lord's Supper. How do we do it? What does it mean? Why don't all churches do it the same? This thing that we do has been a source of controversy and division in the church for a long time. We're so divided over it, we can't even call it the same thing. Some Christians refer to it as the Eucharist, uh, from the Greek word for thanksgiving, since those who officiate at communion uh, follow Jesus' example, and they give thanks for the bread and the cup. Some Christians call it Holy Communion, because Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 speaks of it as a communion, King James English, a communion of the blood of Christ. The word communion is the same word that's often translated as fellowship in the Bible. Uh, it refers to partnership in an undertaking or a share in a financial investment. If you and I started a business together, this is the word that would describe our relationship. Other Christians call this the Lord's Supper because in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, that's what Paul calls it. Some describe it as a sacrament. Others call it an ordinance. Uh, some Christians eat it every time they gather. Uh, some Christians take it once a month. Some, one group takes it once a year. And some Christians never take it at all, and they don't think we ought to either. Some Christians believe that when an ordained priest gives thanks and blesses the bread and wine, it becomes Jesus' body and blood. It's no longer bread and wine. It is changed. Other Christians believe that's called transubstantiation. Other Christians believe that when an ordained priest gives thanks and blesses the bread and wine, it becomes Christ's body and his blood on a spiritual level, but remains bread and wine on a physical level. That's called consubstantiation. Some Christians believe that the bread and wine remain bread and wine. They're not transformed Nevertheless, Christ is really present whenever the bread and wine are properly administered. And other Christians believe that the bread and wine are only symbols chosen by Jesus to be reminders of his body and blood, a helpful way to, for us to remember that he died for us and we ought to live for him. Uh, in the 14th century, the English theologian and priest, uh, Bible scholar John Wycliffe, taught that the bread remains bread and the wine remains wine, and so the Pope called him the master of errors. This bread and wine, or juice, we can't even agree about that, has divided the church for the better part of a millennium. When the divided church has tried to reunite, communion is the thing that's most often stymied the effort. According to the Apostle Paul, this bread we share reminds us that we are all one people, that we belong to each other, and yet this bread has frequently had the opposite effect. All that raises important questions. Should we do this? After 2,000 years, should we still be doing this? And if we think we should, why? Why should we do this? How should we do this? What does it mean when we do this? So let me take those questions in order. First, should we do this? Since there's so much debate and division over communion, wouldn't the church be better off if it just dropped it all together? There's one problem with that. It was Jesus himself who instituted this odd meal, and he apparently expects his people to continue doing it. Since that's the case, we need an understanding of Holy Communion, the Lord's Supper, Eucharist, whatever you want to call it, that will enable us to do and be what Jesus intended, even though it'll probably never satisfy the stakeholder in this debate. 
How do we do this? Or why? Let's take that next. I think the most compelling answer is because Jesus expects us to. He told us to do this. Eat this bread, drink this cup, in or unto a remembrance of me. He did not say, and thank God he didn't say this, understand this bread and this cup in remembrance of me. He said, do this. When St. Paul gave instructions to the, Lord's, uh, to the mostly Gentile church in Corinth about the Lord's Supper, he reminded them that Jesus said, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Paul clearly saw this as something the church, both Jews and Gentiles, would continue doing until Jesus returns. So that's why we do it. We do it because Jesus expected us to. Now, how often we do it, we don't know what Jesus expected. Nor St. Paul, nor any biblical writer. They never get specific about how often to do it. We're simply told that as often as we do this, several times a week, once a week, once a month, once a year, as often as we do it, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The next question is, how do we do this? Some Christians use fresh-baked bread, unleavened bread. Others use wafers. I've heard of people using cheesy fish crackers. Some churches drink from a common cup. Some insist on alcoholic wine. Others absolutely refuse to drink alcoholic wine. Some groups take communion as part of a regular shared meal. Others do it as a standalone event. One might assume, and I do, that the lack of specifics in the biblical record suggests that Jesus is okay if we use wine or if we use grape juice, if we use wafers or we use fresh-baked bread. We have liberty to incorporate it into a regular meal or to set it apart as a communion service. We needn't put the how of communion into a straitjacket. Jesus didn't do that. We don't need to either. There are more important things. And that brings us to the third question. What does it mean? What does this mean? I suspect it means more than any of us know. But rather than go into theories about communion that might feed our curiosity, I'd rather stick to what the Bible says and feed our spirits and increase our love for God and for each other. So whether you hold that transubstantiation, consubstantiation, real presence, or the symbolic view, there are biblical fundamentals we can agree on. The primary sources for understanding the Lord's Supper are the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. St. John doesn't even mention it. And the 10th and 11th chapters of Paul's letter to the Corinthians. There's also important contextual data in the accounts of the Passover. You'll never understand this apart from the Old Testament. And the accounts of the Passover and instructions regarding the Feast of Unleavened Bread. We don't have time to look at all those passages, or to develop a theology of the Eucharist. But I want to look at communion this morning in a way that increases our love for God and our loyalty to him and to each other. To that end, let's look at Luke's account, the Lord's Supper, chapter 22. I'm going to start with verse 14. I'll read through verse 20, but it would be helpful to read all the way through verse 30. So I encourage you to do that. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, 
I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after the supper. He took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. So there are many things that could be said profitably about the Lord's Supper. But today I want to concentrate on just one. So I'm not trying to be exhaustive by any means. I want to concentrate on just one thing. The Lord's Supper takes place in a kingdom context. The Lord's Supper takes place in a kingdom context. In Luke's account, in the teaching that follows it, those verses from 20 to 30, which is a primary source of our understanding of what this means, the kingdom of God is mentioned four times. Yet most teaching on the Eucharist entirely overlooks this. Put yourself in the disciples' place on that evening in which the Lord's Supper took place. You're in that upper room. Four days earlier, they'd entered Jerusalem to the shouts of revolution. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. People were chanting, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord from Psalm 118. Blessed, they said, is the king of Israel. Jesus' core disciples were convinced that they had found or had been found by the true king of Israel. They believed the Messiah had come and that the long-awaited kingdom of God was about to overthrow the kingdoms of men just as the prophets had foretold. They knew there might be violence. A couple of them had come to this meeting armed. They saw themselves as holy warriors and they were ready for the battle to begin. It was Passover. You understand what that means? Passover was the anniversary of the greatest night in the history of Israel, the night of their liberation from Egypt. It was their Independence Day. The atmosphere was electric. When Jesus said, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, and the English doesn't do justice to that. The Greek's even stronger. With longing, I long. Or it's really the word that's translated over and over again in the New Testament as lust. With lust, I have lusted to eat this Passover with you. When he said that, the disciples knew that the moment they had been waiting for had arrived. The revolution was about to begin. And what better time than at Passover? As they prepared to eat the meal, Jesus told them, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. Now, if you'd been there, what would you have heard Jesus saying when he said that? You'd have heard him say, the battle is about to begin. It'll be tough. I will suffer. But the next time we celebrate Passover, it will be under the rule of the kingdom of God. And you would have said, hear, hear. 
The new age is about to begin. We will be victorious. In the Passover meal, to this day, four cups of wine were used, each one representing one of God's promises in Exodus. I will bring out the first cup. I will deliver the second cup. I will redeem the third cup. I will take the fourth cup. At some point in the meal, Jesus took one of the cups, one of the first two that were served. We don't know which drank from it and said, I tell you, or you could translate that, I'm telling you, I am telling you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. The disciples assumed he was talking days, maybe weeks. What was about to happen was going to be tough. But whether they lived or died, they would be victorious. The kingdom of God was coming. When Jesus took the unleavened bread, the matzah, he held it up as the host at the Passover always does. But instead of, or in addition to the traditional blessing, blessed are you, God, our Lord, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth, He took it and broke it and said, this is my body. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The apostles were surprised. That wasn't part of the Passover meal. You imagine what was going through their heads when Jesus took the bread, held it up like he would at Passover, and then broke it and said, this is my body. Suddenly, the danger and the cost became real to them. Though as of yet, they had no idea how great the cost would be. Jesus then took another of the four cups of wine, probably the third cup, the cup of blessing. I say that because in 1 Corinthians 10, when Paul's instructing the Corinthians about the Lord's Supper, in that passage, he says, the cup of blessing which we bless The third cup was known as the cup of blessing. Once again, he departs from the traditional words of the Passover, and he says, or he adds, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. He then told them, all of you, drink it. Again, put yourself in the disciples' place. It is the cup of the new covenant, the long-promised since Jeremiah's time. You can read about it in Jeremiah 31, Hebrews chapter 8, in Ezekiel, the long-promised covenant through which God would forgive sins and rebellion and take his people, his exiled people, back to himself. Jesus calls it a cup of blood, his blood poured out for the new Israel, the leaders of which sat around that table. By allowing them to eat the broken bread and drink the blood of the covenant, he was giving them a share in what was about to happen. Paul calls it a communion, a koinonia, if you know the Greek word, 
a partnership in blood, his blood. This band of brothers sitting at the table must have remembered other things Jesus had said. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. You understand that take up a cross meant you were going to die. You can't follow me unless you're ready for that. Or any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. This strange meal is like the Passover meal, and yet there's a difference. Passover looked back at what God had done. This meal looks back, too, in remembrance. But it also looks forward to what God is going to do. It looks forward to its fulfillment in the kingdom of God. To eat this bread and drink this cup calls for faith. Faith in Jesus, the king. And how that faith was challenged when on the next day, these men sitting at that table saw their king hanging on a Roman cross. What must they have thought? No. There's supposed to be a battle. Jesus was supposed to win. The kingdom of God was supposed to come. But the plan had gone off the rails. It was only after Jesus was raised from the dead that they realized the kingdom of God plan and the new covenant upon which it was based was still on track. Do you remember what Jesus spoke about to the apostles during the 40 days between his resurrection and his ascension? For 40 days, Acts 1-3 says he appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. His death and resurrection were always part of the kingdom of God plan, and it was still right on track. Whether you are a transubstantiationist, a consubstantiationist, a Zwingli symbolist, or a real presence adherent, this remains true. This meal is all wrapped up in the kingdom of God and the new covenant. This practice of eating bread Drinking wine or juice in remembrance is still for people who are ready to live and die for the kingdom and its king. A few short decades after this night, this night in the upper room, people all around the Mediterranean were meeting in little groups, sometimes behind locked doors, and they were eating this bread and drinking this cup, and swearing allegiance to this king, Jesus, proclaiming his death and looking for his kingdom. Where you find people taking this meal, you find agents of the kingdom of God, people who have joined Jesus in the insurgency of love. When they eat this bread, drink this cup, they name themselves people of the new covenant. People who have a share, a communion, a partnership in the death of Jesus and in the kingdom of God. That's why this meal is reserved for people who've believed on Jesus. People who are committed to him. This is not for outsiders or infiltrators. It's for people who have joined the true king in the insurgency of love. They believe in Jesus, sworn allegiance to Jesus, and submit to Jesus as Lord. 
They are part of Jesus' people. What does it take to participate in this meal? Bravery? Thankfully, no. We get scared easily. Like the apostles themselves, when trouble comes, we're likely to scatter. You don't have to be brave to take part in this meal. Then what is necessary? Spirituality? Do you have a deep sense of spirituality to do this? Again, thankfully, no. What about sinlessness? Do you have to, to have it all together in order to take this meal? No. Do you need to understand all that this meal entails? Heavens, no. You're not smart enough for that, neither am I. Then what do you need to take this meal? One thing. Faith in Jesus. This meal is for his people, the ones who believe in him. When we take this meal, we identify ourselves as the one who stake, stake everything on the one who gave everything. This meal is not for the religious unless they belong to Jesus. This meal is not for people whose names are on membership rolls unless they belong to Jesus. This meal is not for you unless you belong to Jesus. But if you belong to Jesus or are ready to join him, come. Come, all ye faithful. Come, ye sinners poor and needy. Come and eat this bread. Drink this cup. Share his death. Share his life. And maybe, God be praised, just maybe, the next time we take this meal, we will eat it with him in the kingdom of God. You and I and our brothers and sisters hiding out in places like Ethiopia, Saudi Arabia, in China, in Pakistan, in India, meeting together in groups of eight or ten, setting a guard at the door, hounded by the kingdoms of this world, tossed into prisons or worse, tossed into graves. Eat this bread and drink this cup. And when we do, we remember him in his death and commit ourselves unto death for the sake of our king and his kingdom. Friends, the day is coming when we'll not eat a morsel and drink a sip, but we'll share a feast, for this meal will be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. The Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove the disgrace of his people from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. And that day they will say, we will say, surely this is our God. 
we trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. That day is nearer now than when we first believed. Eat and drink and proclaim his death until he comes. Let's stand together and sing a song. And as we do, men, would you come who are going to help us with the communion?